All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. And first off, I think we want to thank everybody who uh, joined in on the International Agatha Christie Festival. Don't you think, Kemper? Absolutely. We had such a blast putting ourselves out there on the YouTube channel for all to see. We're on full display. (laughs) And I think it went off really well. Oh, no, no. We were so delighted by our interviews and by everybody who responded to us and who joined in. And even the horror of seeing yourself on YouTube. I got over it eventually, Kemper. It is not for the faint of heart. I agree with you about that. But it was worth it because we had such great conversations with the three folks who we spoke to. And I was really impressed by the other presentations that were available on the channel. So there is a ton of content up there. If you haven't yet gone, you can just go to YouTube and put in International Agatha Christie Festival and everything will be right there at your fingertips. But going on, Comfer, outside of that we we have ourselves a novel yes we do guess who is our detective here i have no need to guess i am quite aware that it is one miss jane marple it is and the book is 450 from paddington which we know that a lot of you have a huge amount of affection for could you tell us a little bit about the publication history Catherine brobeck I can. So basically, this is like a little bit weird almost for us because uh, it kind of was all published at once. So it was serialized in John Bull in um, October to November of 1957. It was published by Collins Crime on November 4th of 1957. It was published uh, by Dodd Mead in November 1957 and also serialized in the Chicago Tribune in October to December of 1957. And, you know, sometimes we don't get that. Sometimes there's a, like a little bit of a disparity there. And I'd this say we all, almost never get that, right? Yeah. No, yeah. no, it all pretty much happened at once. And um, the only um, significant changes um, were the titling because in the U.S., in the serialization, it was apparently called Eyewitness to Death, and then it was published in the Dodd Mead version as what Mrs. McGillicuddy saw. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. (laughs) And it's called that because I guess, I mean, I, I think the assumption here is that they assumed that Americans would not know what Paddington Station was. Right. They'd be like, the 450 from Paddington Bear? Which, you know, is still itself <laughs> Although, a reference to Paddington way, Station, yeah, right? Paddington <laughs> Bear is discovered by the Brown family at yeah. Paddington Station. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, it's funny. The titling of this one actually is one of Christie's more drawn out processes. Sometimes the titles were easy and sometimes they weren't. I actually have right. a little bit more background info on this. So mm-hmm. per Janet Morgan, who we can now visualize, actually, since we just recently watched that one wonderful 1990 biofilm in which she was one of the primary talking heads that is over right. on Patreon if anyone would like to check that out but per Janet Morgan this novel was first called the 415 
from Paddington. Then it was called the 430 from Paddington. Then the 450. And then when Agatha Christie sent a full draft to her agent, Edmund Cork, in March of 1956, it was actually called the 454 from Paddington. And it remained the 454 from Paddington until right before it was published. And the reason for that is that she was assured by an expert who she consulted when she was at Nimrud with Max Malloin that there was no 454 from Paddington. And it was very important to her that she didn't pick a train that existed. For that reason, she landed on the 454. But obviously, that did not work out. And the reason why, uh, Janet Morgan explained, Collins, her British publishers, found it too clumsy. This is when Dodd Mead then suggested that American readers might not recognize the station. So then this is really funny. Uh, Christie offered 454 from London as a possible title. And she also had this really snarky remark that she made to Edmund Cork in another letter, which is that maybe they should refer even in the UK edition to Paddington as Patterloo in case someone, I'm quoting here now from her letter, in case someone lives in a large house surrounded by railway because she thought that it could be another Mr. Nicoletis situation. Because if you remember from Hickory Dickory Dock, she got a very angry letter from a Mr. Nicoletis who said, how dare you have stolen my mother's identity for your book because that was the very very unpleasant landlady of yeah. of the hostel residence there and obviously she didn't you know steal her identity and poor Mr. Nicoletis I suppose just had a rather unpleasant mother so she was just very worried about any kind of like real world allusions but Collins ultimately trumped on that score and thought that 450 from Paddington sounded the best and then Dodd Mead made their change in terms of what Mrs. McGillicuddy saw. But the weird little textual glitch that happened is that uh, apparently the change from 454 to 450 at the last minute was not communicated to Dodd Mead, who weren't using that for their title anyway. So in the first American edition of the book, the train is the 454 from Paddington, which is interesting <laughs> before they changed it. Really, really interesting. Yeah, I will admit too, I'm such a pedant that I also have kind of an issue with whether or not it's a period or a colon that is being used in the timestamp 450 because if you'll notice that it's I, a, I, well, it's a period, I think, it's right? It's usually a period, but in and I think that that is more of the British kind of standard way of denoting a timestamp, but in my HarperCollins edition, my US HarperCollins edition, which uses the UK title, it is four colon 50 from Paddington. And then if you look on Wikipedia, which often has the first um, true edition covers for each entry of an Agatha Christie novel, in that case, it's the first UK edition and it's four dot 50, but the dot is vertically centered. So it's not a dot like a period on the bottom. It's a dot in the middle. It's all just very bewildering. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. If anyone has any light to shed on that, I would be thrilled to get a super, super nerdy email from you. So please do send a message. You know, the weirdest thing about it is we in the United States, we'd call it military time, but that's usually what is used in the UK, right? It would not be 450 anyway, right? Excellent observation. And I forget where I came across this, but it, it was noted. I don't know when what we call military time. I don't know when that was standardized in the UK, but it certainly is standardized now. So like if you go to Paddington Station now, that time would be 16.50, but it wasn't then. 
it wasn't in 1957. That was not the standard that it is. I actually, I have to be honest, I actually kind of like the time thing because it actually makes more sense. Using a 24 hour clock. Yeah. Yeah, I understand especially why you would use it on something like a railway timetable because you don't want to confuse matters unnecessarily. So yeah, it, make, it, make, it makes a whole lot of sense. In All any right, case. Um, <laughs> going on, Kemper, let's talk about the victim or victims. <laughs> yeah, so talking about the victim is a little tricky here because... A, there are several victims. We are going to have three murders by the time we are done summarizing the plot of this novel. B, our first victim, our primary victim, her identity is very much a mystery. So we can't really name her up front. Because what Miss barely name her by the end. (laughs) We can barely name her by the end, and we're going to talk about that. Because what Mrs. McGillicuddy saw, of course, was let's just call her for now a girl on a train. She was a blonde in a fur coat who was strangled to death by a dark haired, tall man in a train car. And Mrs. McGillicuddy, who was traveling on the 450 from Paddington, saw all this happen because her train and the train on which the murder took place were running parallel at the time. We will get more into that in just a moment. For now, let's talk about the suspects. Oh, dear, Kemper. It's not quite everyone in this case, but it's like close to. This is going to sound very confusing, and it will make more sense when we get into the world as it actually is. But essentially, we're dealing with members of one family, and they have a terrible name. How would you say their name, Kepper? The Krakenthorps? Yes. So we have the patriarch, Luther. He's kind of an unlikely suspect to begin with because he's elderly, but he's been lording over his children for his entire life, and they are all kind of living in hatred and fear of him. Right, and he's one of those invalids who may not be as weak as he pretends. So I feel like Which there's... Which we've, we've seen that character before. Yeah, so. yeah. So he's not really a suspect, but he's a, he's a little bit of a suspect. Next up, we have Alfred Krakenthorpe, who is a, a ne'er-do-well brother who really just wants the old man dead. So then we have Harold Krakenthorpe, who is an ostensibly well-heeled financial type in London, and he still wants the old man dead. And we also have his wife, Lady Alice. Actually, let's be honest, she's not a suspect. Yeah, this is a really interesting situation for a Christie novel because it's quite unusual for Christie to specify the sex of the murderer up front, but she really does. Of course, with Christy, like she could potentially have a trick up her sleeve whereby it's a tall woman who's dressed as a man, but it would be pretty unlikely and spoiler alert, it is a man. So it's just a rarity for Christy because she usually likes to leave it really open and it's really not here. So it really is the men who are the suspects. Next up, we have Cedric Krakenthorpe, who is another son. He is also a bit of a ne'er-do-well, except he's an artist. Yeah. He's, he's not a petty thief like Alfred, and he lives on, you know, a tropical island. Ugh. We know what sort of lax morals he must have. Of course. And, and yeah, and he has a sister, right? He has a sister, yep, Emma Krakenthorpe, who is the remaining sister of of the family. She, for all intents and purposes, is a spinster living with her father. She is his caretaker. Right. And then we have Brian Eastley. Um, there used to be a youngest sister, Edie. She died, but she in fact Weirdly enough, is the only family member to procreate. 
of this bunch. And she married during World War II, kind of a Monty type, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Well, here's the funny thing. I mean, Brian Eastley is 100% a Monty type. And this is how I know that I've been reading too much Christy and reading up a bit too much on Christy because there's this little throwaway reference made about Brian Eastley late in the novel about how he reminds Miss Marple of this man called Ronnie Wells. And this is what Miss Marple says. You know, Miss Marple's doing her usual thing where she makes her parallels to village people. She says, he went out to East Africa and started a series of cargo boats on the lake out there. Anyway, I'm sorry to say that it wasn't a success and he lost all his capital. Most unfortunate. And as I was reading that, I was like, that's actually Monty. Like, I think Monty actually had some sort of failed boating venture in Africa. And I had to go look it up because I was like, maybe I'm making this up. But no, he did. He tried to run a cargo boat operation out on Lake Victoria, which was apparently a complete disaster till it got appropriated by the War Department at the outset of World War One, anyway. So like that kind of saved him. <laughs> so Brian Eastley actually out Monty's all of these Montyish characters that we have littering the Christie of. So yes, he is definitely very, very Monty. Yeah, but he's the father of the only heir to the family. They're all heirs, but the youngest generation there's only one and it's his son. Right. Yeah. There's only one member of, you know, that next generation guys. Cause as you said, Edie right. Krakenthorpe is the only of these children to have spawned. <laughs> right. And then um, also, you know, we have Dr. Quimper who's the village GP and we have various servants and children, but like, let's be honest, they don't really count. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, we'll talk about this, but Alexander has a friend and then they're staying with the family and they are very heavily featured in the novel. And I wanted to try to pretend that there could be a fast forward here if you haven't read Crooked House yet, but I wanted to pretend that there might be a, you know, Josephine angle, but of course there can't be because we know that it was a tall adult man who strangled this woman in the train. So fortunately, Alexander Eastley is not a suspect. The world as it appears to be, Kemper. Let's just get into this. Mrs. McGillicuddy is returning from London on a train. It's right before Christmas. Which train is that again? Oh, it might be the 450 from Paddington. Oh, okay. (laughs) And, you know, it's relatively peaceful, but they begin to have track delays. And so she's watching out the window and another train passes them. But out the window, she sees a blonde woman wearing a fur coat being strangled until she dies by a dark-haired man whose back she sees. Good premise, Kemper. It really is a great premise because I think most of us have had that experience, be it on a train or especially in the New York subway. That's where it really happens a lot. Like when the express and local trains, which are going in the same direction, often they both have to slow down, you know, Mm -hmm. as, as they're going into a station and you have that feeling where you're in one car and you look over and you really stare pretty nakedly at the people in the next train because there are no stakes because you're not in the same space as them. So you can be a little rude about it. Do you know what I mean? And you're just kind of like are gawking, ogling the scene. And it's very freeing. But yes, I mean, I could imagine the horror rather than seeing someone pick their nose like someone getting murdered. It's it's fantastic (laughs) premise. I completely understand that. And I completely understand it on the subway because, you know, it is fascinating to look at what other people are doing. 
It's funny, apparently, I'm also getting this from Janet Morgan, by the way, big Janet Morgan episode, the idea of two trains crossing each other and like one overtaking the other that actually figured in an early draft of the Mary Westmacott novel, The Burden, which came out in 1956, just a year before this novel came out. And like, I believe it. I don't think it made it into the final version, but I believe that because it's one of these premises that could go in so many different directions, right? There's the erotic direction. There's the romantic direction direction there is the you know more thrillery direction which is is sort of this you know the or the who done it e direction i suppose dramatic comedic it's just sort of rife with possibility well and on top of it i mean we we just joked a few minutes ago that we're calling her the girl on a train but what is the premise of the girl on a train or what is the premise of the woman in the window or any exactly. of those exactly it's the exact same premise. Yeah. As is so often the case with Christy, I mean, she's not doing something that hadn't been done before and wouldn't go on to be done many times over, but she does it excellently. This is a really strong opening to a book. I mean, it is Mm -hmm. a great hook and it moves quickly. Like this happens in the first chapter and it's gripping and exciting and unusual and we're in. Right. And before you think, oh, this is like a silly elderly lady, she's confident enough that she tells a porter and then she gets off the train, she calls Scotland Yard and then, oh, guess who like one of her best friends is? The last line of the first chapter is one of the best. Oh, Jane, she wailed. I've just seen a murder. She has just appeared on the doorstep of Miss Marple. That is our introduction to Miss Marple. An early introduction, a dramatic one. I'm living the dream here, Catherine. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful opening. You know, and they kind of don't initially believe her. And when she tells Jane that Miss Marple immediately believes her. Right, because she knows that her friend Elspeth McGillicuddy is a sensible woman who does not imagine things. Right. So she says that she saw a woman strangled to death. She saw a woman strangled to death. So the question only is, then, where's the body? And woe to any murderer trying to hide a body once Miss Jane Marple is on the scent, because uh, I think she's going to find that body, Catherine. Well, in this case, she might not be the one who finds it, but... At least in a supervisory capacity. Correct, correct. (laughs) But you know what Miss Marple does, which we actually do not see all that often. We see it happen in Body in the Library, where she goes to stay at the resort hotel deliberately. But Miss Marple gets on a train. Yeah, she does some investigating. I have to pull this out as a Miss Marple devotee. I mean, the moment in which she's sort of thinking to herself, well, should I really go down this road? You know, like I, I know that if Elspeth McGillicuddy says that there's a body somewhere, then then there's a body somewhere. And should I try to find it? And she's sort of doing a cost benefit analysis on the credit side as to why she should follow through on this. She has number one, my long experience of life and human nature. The number two, Sir Henry Clithering and his godson, now at Scotland Yard, I believe, who was so very nice in the Little Paddock's case. That is the first of many references to a murder is announced, which gets right. referenced a whole bunch in this novel. Then third is my nephew Raymond's second boy, David, who is, I'm almost sure, in British Railways. Nice little Raymond West ref. And then my favorite item here is number four, Griselda's boy, Leonard, who is so very knowledgeable about maps. That is right. Leonard Clement, who was in utero at the end of 
I murder know. at the vicarage is now a grown man who has a healthy interest in cartography. Well, like a, a young man, right? I mean, we're yeah, not saying... Yeah, a young yeah. man. He's got a boyish enthusiasm for cartography, but he seems to be probably hovering around 20 on either side. It does also clarify the chronology in a way that Christy really does deal with in this novel. And apparently that's something else that she did have to edit a bit because it's very obvious that Miss Marple is a lot older here than she was yeah. in Murder at the Vicarage, for example. And Christy kind of hangs a lantern on that right here because on the debit side is quote, her own bodily weakness. Because she knows, Kirstie writes, that yes, that was the chief objection, her own age and weakness. Although for her age, her health was good, yet she was old. And she is definitely older here. So um, she's really dealing with that. And given the fact that she's older, she does, though, still have the, uh, the spunk and the wherewithal to speak with David West and to speak with Leonard Clement and get everything in order. And she figures out, all on her own, the most logical spot for where one would dump a body off of that train that Mrs. McGillicuddy ran up next to on the 450 from Paddington. First, she just has to figure out which train it could have been. And she does narrow that down. And it's uh, Leonard who helps her with that. And the train in question is actually the 433, which is a slow train that stations at Market Basing. So that is ultimately the train on which the murder must have taken place. And she realizes that the most likely area for where one would dump a body off of the train, since no body was found on the train, is this area near Rutherford Hall and the Rutherford Woods, which is the home of the Krakenthorpe family. So that is why we start zeroing in on the Krakenthorpe family. That name, by the way, totally reminded me of the Inglethorpes from the yeah. mysterious of Ferret Styles, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, Gomez Marple, she really does some sleuthing on the ground to figure that out. But then she takes a step back and what does she do, Catherine? She recruits uh, Miss Lucy Alsbaro, who she'd previously had work for her. And Lucy is, I guess I would call her a mercenary housekeeper. She's young. She's extremely smart. She's pretty enough. She's highly efficient, but she has no interest in working in an office. She doesn't come from money. Basically, she plays Mary Poppins for families across England who, you know, at this point in 1957, can't afford regular help anymore. She essentially goes into a house, but she only stays on for these very short-term assignments that are essentially maneuvering the household like situations into something manageable. And then she just pieces. She's just like, nope, gone. Right. Let's give her her true bona fides here. She is very well educated. She had taken a first in mathematics at Oxford. By the way, math was one of Christie's favorite subjects. Lucy Islesborough, to me, feels like another... Um, it's not as obvious as Ariadne Oliver, since Ariadne Oliver is a mystery author. But I think there is a lot of Agatha Christie in Lucy Islesborough actually. Oh, yeah, I kind of think so, too. She has the exact same mercenary spirit that Christy honestly also had, like just delighting in money and being able to enjoy herself and to go on holiday when she wants to and to meet interesting people. I love this description of her. But Lucy Islesborough, in addition to scholarly brilliance, had a core of good, sound, common sense. She could not fail to observe that a life of academic distinction was singularly ill-rewarded. She also, quite frankly, liked money. 
and she's really good at what she does. And I, I think calling her Mary Poppins is exactly right. I love the breathlessness of the description of Lucy Osbro. I, I just want to pull a tiny bit of this out. The point of Lucy Osbro is that once she came into a house, all worry, anxiety, and hard work went out of it. Lucy Islesboro did everything, saw to everything, arranged everything. She was unbelievably competent in every conceivable sphere. She looked after elderly parents, accepted the care of young children, nursed the sickly, cooked divinely, got on well with any old crust of servants there might happen to be. There usually weren't. Was tactful with impossible people, soothed habitual drunkards, was wonderful with dogs. Best of all, she never minded what she did. She scrubbed the kitchen floor, dug in the garden, cleaned up dog messes, and carried coals. And there's an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. (laughs) And it actually reminded me slightly of Parker Pine. Because you know how Parker Pine would charge wildly varying fees? depending on (laughs) how much his clients could charge. I mean, he was very mercenary too, but if there was someone who he liked or someone who interested him, he was perfectly happy to charge five pounds as opposed to the 5,000 pounds he had just charged, you know, a countess. And um, we we get the sense that Lucy Islesboro does the same thing. She goes where the wind takes her. Yeah, and where the wind takes her is because Miss Marple calls her and um, explains the situation and suggests Suggests that Lucy might want to perhaps have an elderly aunt who she wants to be close to, who might be having some health issues, and perhaps she could offer her services to the sort of crumbling estate at Rutherford Hall. She's intrigued. So she does exactly that, and they immediately hire her on. Christy really does dwell on all of the cooking and the kind of organizing and rearranging that she does of the kitchen and how she, like, scrubs down the table, which is really dirty, and, like, she just wants everything to be spick and span. Christy used to joke. She had an ongoing joke that in another life she would have made a really excellent housemaid. Because she loved domesticity and she loved order and she loved the kind of ritual that would go along with cleaning a house and making everything nice to live in. And that was all very important to her, you know, which I think we can see in her greater love of real estate. But you can feel it in this book. Like there's a real underlying passion (laughs) for what Lucy does and admiration for it too, which really to me adds to my enjoyment of the book. Lucy Islesboro, if you couldn't tell, is one of my favorite characters in the of. She, by the way, is what I remembered from my original read. In my mind, I'm like, oh, 450 from Paddington. That's the Lucy Islesboro book to me. Well, like she also, really helps Lucy Isles, Lucy Islesboro is the knee plus ultra of never underestimate the help. Absolutely. I mean, she is the shining archetype of at your peril. Do you underestimate this brain <laughs> beating, you yeah, know, within this, this housemaid? <laughs> do not ever do it. I mean, and they make the mistake of doing so, really. Yeah. And of course, then she goes body hunting. Yeah, like she pretends to go golfing, which is also just so funny. It's like she's working there as a servant, but she's like, I'm going to golf a little bit. Is that cool? And I think everyone's so like scared of losing her that they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like do whatever you want. Times have changed, you know, she's a servant, but she is also like able to lord it over them a little bit because her services are so valuable and she's so good at what she does. She doesn't really discover anything for a while, though. Like it takes a while. And along the way, she does figure out some interesting things about the family. First of all, she discovers that Luther Crackenthorpe, who seems to be the patriarch of this family, the one in charge, doesn't actually have 
any of his own money. He's kind of a placeholder because what happened is that his father was the rich entrepreneur. He made a fortune in candies, apparently, sort of confectionery. But because Luther, when he was younger, wanted to spend all of his time and money on apparently bad art, his father essentially cut him out of the family fortune. So the capital of that fortune is currently being held in trust, and Luther can only use the income that's generated off it. He can't touch the capital. When Luther dies, that capital will be divided equally among his surviving issue, which at the beginning of the book is five people, his four living children, Cedric, Harold, Alfred, and Emma, and his one grandson, Alexander Eastley. And Brian, because Alexander is a minor, would have control over the capital if Luther died. Right. And there was also an eldest son, Edmund, who seemingly died during the war before marrying or having children. The property, Rutherford Hall and its extensive grounds, for which we are told many a commercial developer would pay a pretty penny, goes to the eldest son, which used to be Edmund, but is now Cedric. And he's obviously very bitter that he can't control any of this money. So because of that, he tries to control his children as much as he can. So he's horrible to his surviving daughter, who's his caretaker, and she's basically trapped there with him. And it's just this old empty house that they're rattling around in. And it's not a great situation. So this is all kind of background information that we're getting as Lucy is finding out facts about the family and getting acquainted. So we're not sure how this is all going to be relevant or indeed even if if it's going to be relevant. Um, So Lucy does eventually, however, find that body. Of course she does, because she is good at everything she does. And uh, it turns up in a long barn, which of course has a sarcophagus in it. It's actually one of of those oddities. Yeah, Luther's poor spending habits. These things have all been shoved into the long barn because apparently they're hideous. And yeah, Lucy finds a decomposing corpse. A uh, woman's corpse in that sarcophagus. I want to just be clear that she opens the sar- sarcophagus by finding a separate crowbar going back into the barn and then by herself prying open an antiquity. Yeah, she goes hardcore. but she does find that body and you know she had previously found a compact and on the ground and bits of a fur Mm -hmm. coat which indicated that yes miss marple's theory seemed to be correct that a woman had a woman's body had rolled down that hill but this is obviously the find that she was looking for and all hell kind of breaks loose at that point right because we've already involved um inspector craddock in scotland yard and so um you know for those who don't remember him from a murderous announced he's Sir Henry Clithering's godson. And so as a result, because as we know from the 13 problems, Sir Henry immensely trusts Miss Marple. So if Miss Marple's telling him something, despite the fact that he is a pretty well-respected Scotland Yard investigator, he's going to trust Fluffy. It's used repeatedly in the book, Fluffy old Miss Marple. Yeah, I have a lot of affection for D.I. Craddock because he does have that clithering-ish reverence for Miss Marple and Miss Marple's brain, more specifically. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of affection between them. I mean, Miss Marple basically thinks of him as her godson, almost, because he's, you know, her good friend's godson. There's a really funny moment where he's talking with her and he says, you know, I thought you and I might take down our back hair together when they're talking over the case. And Miss Marple responds by saying, I'm sure that no one who only knows you officially would ever guess that you could be so human and better looking than ever. Don't blush. 
it's the idea of this man sitting there and he's like blushing and she's like giving his cheek a little chuck with her finger. It's just adorable. Like they have a, a really cute relationship, which we don't often get between the detective and the inspector d'histoire. So I appreciated that in this book. Yeah. So Craddock, he ends up talking to Emma the daughter, who provides evidence of this woman named Martine, who she thinks that her eldest brother, Edmund, who died in the war, that maybe he was married to. And then she has other evidence basically saying that she was going to come to England and that she has a son of her own that is Edmund's son. So it'd be another heir to this, you know, ostensible Willy Wonka fortune. And the actual heir to the estate. I mean, that would be the person who has the absolute right to inhabit. Yeah, right, right. Edmund's son would, of course, be the person who had it. And so there's like this threat of it Plus, there are like actual letters from the war that suggest that she did, in fact, exist. They just, nobody quite knows who she is. She definitely seems to have existed, but it's unclear whether they got married. And it's certainly extremely unclear whether they had a child together. So maybe this woman is lying. Maybe she's not. This is obviously a very important lead on the case because perhaps this woman is Martine. And given this sort of inheritance hijinks here that's been going on in this family, that would certainly be a motive for murder. So Craddock uses his French resources to trace who Martine might be. And he has a contact at the Sûreté in Paris. And they suggest that it might be this missing ballet arena who is named Anna Stravinska, which sounds like a Russian name, but you know, that's just a stage name. She seems to have been a French woman and not a particularly good ballerina either. She was in a mediocre dance company. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But then it turns out that this Anna Stravinska is apparently alive and well in the Caribbean on a holiday because she sent some postcards to, you know, some of her friends. So that's weird and inconclusive. We then go through a massive chunk of the book, which is essentially timing clues involving the various brothers. Yeah, it's a lot of red herrings, and we can dispense with them really quickly because the most obvious suspects are Harold, whose banking endeavors aren't really going well. He puts on a good front, but apparently he's about to crash. And then Alfred is a petty criminal, so he's just generally up to no good. So it's not too far a leap to imagine that perhaps he did murder someone. In fact, he never has before, but, you know, it's a change in degree for him. So there is a lot of speculation about those two. And again, we do know that this was a tall, dark-haired man who Elspeth McGillicuddy saw, and all of the Krakenthorpe brothers are tall with dark hair. Brian Eastley is fair-haired, but there is a point made later in the book that with hair product, essentially, what we would call hair product now, some yeah, that even fair hair can look dark. So we can dispense with Harold and Alfred because they both die. <laughs> actually, yeah, whoops. Alfred, oh, whoops, whoops. Alfred actually dies first. Lucy makes a just delicious curry because, again, she's a great cook. But 
unfortunately, that curry seems to have arsenic in it, and everyone else gets super sick. But mm-hmm. um, Alfred passes away. And then Brother Harold, who had been taking this medication for his own arsenical poisoning, he goes home, and we have this weird little sequence with his wife where we get to meet his wife, which is fairly pointless for the book. So we're just going to glide right on over that. But they don't seem to be very happy together as man and wife. And he gets this refill prescription that is ostensibly from Dr. Quimper saying, oh, you know, you need to take more of these pills. And he's like, oh, that's weird. I thought I actually was definitely not supposed to take more of those pills. So he takes those and he's dead (laughs) the next day. Well, super off screen. It's actually really, really odd. And we're going to talk about it in a bit because it happens almost in like a separate paragraph later where it's just like, oh, yeah, and then he's dead. John Curran calls this out. This is one of those late third murders in a Christie novel that feels extremely tacked on. This might be actually my new archetype for the tacked on third murder because I completely agree with you. It's it very, so, very so odd. You almost have to read the paragraph a second time and be like, did I miss a chapter? The only thing that's interesting about it is that the poison that's used in this case mm-hmm. is not arsenic because, again, he was you know recovering from arsenic poisoning. It's aconitine, which mm-hmm. is actually explored in the M is for monkshood chapter in Catherine Harkup's A is for arsenic. The poisons of Agatha Christie haven't been able to uh, delve into that secondary reference for a bit. So for anyone who's been missing that fantastic piece of Christie-inspired nonfiction, I suggest that you read M is for Monkshood. And um, it's a really unusual poison. And Harkov actually dings Christie a little bit because it's such an unusual poison that there wasn't a very ready chemical test for its presence as there were for other poisons. It would have been hard not only to get, but it would have been extremely hard to identify. And yet, because this is such a hasty third murder late in the book, it's sort of like, oh, right, and he died of this, and uh, yeah, that happened, and moving on. By the way, just the, I think you'll love this, Catherine, the nickname for Monkshood is the, quote, Queen Mother of Poisons. I just love that. Like, not the queen of poisons, not the mother of poisons, the queen mother of poisons. I like it. <laughs> it's the queen mum of poisons. No big deal. It's just now down to Cedric and Emma in that generation. And then, of course, we have Alexander Eastley in the next generation. But that does train the spotlight a little bit, I suppose, on Brian Eastley. And we do learn that he was, in fact, on a train from London to Rutherford Hall on the day in question that was very likely the train where the murder took place. Right. But but again, we, and we still just really haven't solved this issue yet. And we're almost at the very end of the novel, which is... Who is no this one, woman? Yeah. Who is this woman? We have no idea who she is. And why did any of these people who we've been dealing with want to kill her? Because again, all these people seem to need Luther Krakenthorpe to be dead to achieve their mercenary ends. Not this random woman, unless maybe she's Martine, but okay. You know, the other thing that is going on sort of parallel to all of this investigating into who was where and when on trains and whatnot is that there's some love in the air. 
you know, it's dare I say Papa Poirot-esque, but... Um, Very much so. Right? Dr. Quimper seems to really just be enamored with Emma Krakenthorpe. They are apparently very much in love. And, you know, Emma is older, but certainly seems interested in Dr. Quimper as well, and perhaps wanting to break away from her domineering father and start a family with... Well, Dr. and Dr. Quimper is actually not that old. Dr. Quimper is, I think, like 44. Yeah, I think she's in her late 30s and he's in his early 40s. You know, they're at that point where they're middle-aged, so people might start dismissing them, <laughs> basically, especially in 1957, but they're actually not old. So there's that, and there's also, we've got a veritable love triangle going on with Lucy Islesborough, who seems to just have two men in particular vying for her affections, although to be honest about it, almost every man in the novel seems to be in love with Lucy Islesborough, yeah. including Luther Krakenthorpe himself, who basically proposes marriage to her. Right. You know, and, and Harold and the, says and the, that he and, wants her to work for him. And Alfred tries to propose marriage early on. And the teenage boys seem enamored with her. Not least because she's such a good cook. <laughs> but Alexander definitely implies that he'd love for her to be his new stepmother because his dad needs a firm hand. Like he needs someone to sort of guide him through life again. His dad is Monty. Cedric Krakenthorpe is the only one who, in his kind of ne'er-do-well, living on a tropical island way. He cracks a lot of jokes and doesn't really pursue Lucy as much as the others, but there's clearly something going on there as well. So just noting that for purposes of the plot as we move on over into the world as it actually is. And this is a really unusual situation here because... Very, very odd. Do we have any clues, Catherine? No, there aren't any clues in this. The only clue I could make an argument for is our kind of fallback clue, which is Occam's razor. Right. When all else fails, you just try to think of what the simplest solution well, could possibly but by be. The way, it's what Miss Marple says at the very end of the book. It is. We'll get there eventually, but I'm just going to read out the first lines. I read out the last line of the first chapter. I'm going to read out the first line of the last chapter, which is as follows, because it's a good line on Miss Marple's part, but it also shows the problems that we have here with this book. So you see, said Miss Marple, it really turned out to be, as I began to suspect, very, very simple. The simplest kind of crime. So many men seem to murder their wives. That's it. That, that is, is the, the basis mm-hmm. for the solution of this entire puzzle mystery. That's it. Right. If you can see that early on, which you probably can, if you've read enough mystery novels and enough Christie, you can probably assume early on what is happening there. And so that's the entire situation with the Martine Anna thing. If you're thinking, as Miss Marple did, that husbands often murder their wives, then the deduction there is to think, okay, well, who among this cast of characters seems to really want to get married? To be fair, a lot of them. All of them. Because they're all all proposing marriage to Lucy, but let's take Lucy out of the equation at least, since she's a new presence among this family. There is one long... She's been inserted only for the purposes of the investigation, so her actual involvement cannot count. So you have to like look at the entire mystery without Lucy involved. So there's only one long-standing affection here that both parties seem to want to turn into marriage, and that would be between Dr. Quimper and Emma Crackenthorpe. I mean, the only other thing that you could possibly say was that if you're talking about poisoners, maybe you want to look at somebody who has access to a dispensary. 
which would again focus us on Dr. Quimper. And I would say this as our last (laughs) quasi clue here, because none of these is really clues. If we've gotten that far as supernaturally astute readers, I would then point to a previous Christie novel. So for anyone who has not read Lord Edgeware Dies, please fast forward for about Mm -hmm. a minute. But Christie has used in the past the motivation of one person wanting to marry another, but unfortunately that person is married to a Catholic. Yeah, And the Catholic won't grant a divorce. It seems that this dead woman, this corpse found in the sarcophagus is a French woman. Many French people are Catholics. What is going on here, Catherine? Let's untangle things. First of all, we can dispense with Martine in a really clunky way. Oh (laughs) my gosh. It was so weird. Yeah. Okay. So this is what we're talking about. Remember Alexander Eastley, who is the youngest generation here. He has a best friend, Roddy, right? Who has been staying with him and we've heard a lot from them throughout the course of the novel. They're a little bit of comic relief and just fun characters. Roddy has a mother, Lady Stoddart West, who hosts the boys because they actually leave Rutherford Hall and they go and stay with Roddy's family. And she hears from them about this murder that happened and it's all that they can talk about, understandably. And that there's a search for this Martine woman who maybe was involved with Edmund Crackenthorpe. So finally, Lady Stoddart West, she drives herself to the house. Yeah, in her roles. In her roles. And it has been mentioned very casually that Roddy's mother is French. That had been mentioned early on in the book. And she rolls on up in her roles and says hello to Emma. Oh, and by the way, I'm Martine. By the way, just to be clear, Emma is still an invalid because of the arsenic poisoning. So Lucy has to put a pink shawl around her while this woman comes in and is like, actually, hey, arsenic poisoning victim who is lying in a bed. I'm actually the Martine from the letters. Right. I did love Edmund. He was wonderful. I'm so glad that we're finally having this conversation now. I just figured it would be too painful. So I never really told you. We obviously never did get married. We obviously never had a child. So the letter that was written to the family ostensibly from Martine was a fake. So we now know that for sure. We also know that the corpse cannot be Martine since Martine is Lady Stoddard West. So Right. So, But we can also assume then at this weird clunky point that Anna Stravinska, who's not Martine apparently, is actually the body. Yes. And from there, things start falling in place. I mean, at that point, remember, Alfred and Harold are dead. Emma and Luther are basically still bedridden because Mm -hmm. they've been poisoned by arsenic. We've still got this very much decomposed dead body here that seems to be Anna Stravinska, whoever that actually is, since we know that it's an alias. So what does Miss Marple do, Catherine? Mrs. McGillicuddy has been on holiday, especially after her traumatizing time. You know what? She really deserves her warm getaway. Miss Marple drags her back to England and she sets up a rendezvous because they know at Rutherford Hall that Lucy was only there because of her ailing aunt who has been introduced to them very early on. It's Miss Marple, obviously. So they go there and there's like this weird setup. Every single person in the entire novel is in the house. Miss Marple ends up grabbing herself as though she's going to choke to death on a fishbone. And so Dr. Quimper, who has also come into the house, 
goes, of course, to check on everybody. He leaps in to save her, at which exact point Lucy brings Mrs. McGillicuddy into the room so that all that Mrs. McGillicuddy sees is a tall haired, dark man strangling to death Miss Marple against a window. And Mrs. McGillicuddy shouts out, That's the murderer. It's convenient timing that Mrs. McGillicuddy comes back at the exact moment. I mean, I'm not exactly sure how Miss Marple was able to time that so precisely. You did skip over, though, what might be, because I have sometimes such a juvenile sense of humor, my favorite part of the book. And this juvenile humor is in there in the book. Christy is taking delight in this because Mrs. McGillicuddy, to exit the room, Miss Marple forces her to ask Emma Crackenthorpe if she can go, quote, upstairs. Oh, no, I did did notice that. Which is apparently, I didn't realize this, but going upstairs is the polite way to ask to go use the bathroom because I think bathrooms usually were kind of like on a second story just to be like out of the way, especially when they were more rudimentary, shall we say, than plumbing tends to be nowadays. But Miss Marple and Mrs. McGillicuddy basically have this conversation about bathroom-related embarrassment. And this was maybe among the thousands of Miss Marple reminiscences in the canon, my favorite, when she says, I remember poor Louisa Felby came to see me once, and she had to ask to go upstairs five times during one little half hour. That, added Miss Marple parenthetically, was a bad Cornish pasty. Yeah. The one thing that Mrs. McGillicuddy fails to mention when she says, that's him, I saw him, is that she only saw his back, which she's about to say. And Miss Marple no, is like, basically don't tells her to shut up. Do it. Yeah. She basically tells her to shut up. It's like almost shocking. Do not speak another word. Yeah. And he, because he thinks that he's been ID'd, he very conveniently confesses slash. Oh my gosh. Also, his confession is basically like, oh, shocks, you got me. John Kearns talked about this in a lot of the Miss Marples. There's a dearth of evidence. So we need this sometimes unconvincing sort of confessional because otherwise it would just be impossible to actually convict any of these murderers because it's just Miss Marple's supposition. And this is a case where we really, really have that problem. So let's just run through what happened. Dr. Quimper was married to Anna Stravinska. Whatever her real name was, we never learn what her real name was, right? We never know. But they were separated. Anna, however, was resolutely Catholic and she refused to divorce Dr. Quimper. And he had fallen in love with Emma and he couldn't get out of that first marriage. So he convinced Anna to leave the ballet, the mediocre ballet where she had been dancing, and to meet him in London, ostensibly to reconcile. He then murdered her in that train carriage, as witnessed by Mrs. McGillicuddy, dumping her body in that ditch along the tracks. He had planned the whole thing out. He knew when to dump the body. He knew where to go to pick up the body later. He even knew that it would be dark out and that that was a relatively deserted area so that no one else would find the body or see the body at that point. And he hid it in the sarcophagus in the long barn at Rutherford Hall. And he set it up so that the family would look culpable when the body was found. And that's why there was that fake letter that had been sent from Martine because he knew the family's secrets since he had been their doctor for so many years. So he was the one who wrote that letter. He then used his access to a pharmacy to poison both of those brothers. And the little bonus there is that due to this odd inheritance structure, 
when Luther Krakenthorpe finally does die, and perhaps he would have killed Luther Krakenthorpe eventually, we don't Possibly. really know, but, but when he does, there are now way fewer children to divide that inheritance among. At the beginning of the novel, there were five, right? And now there are three. I actually learned this in Catherine Harkup's book. There was a famous case with aconitine, which is that third poison used to kill Harold Krakenthorpe, that had been used by a doctor who was killing off his wife's relatives due to exactly this sort of an inheritance scheme because he wanted her to get more money. So it feels like that may have been an inspiration for Christie, and she used that unusual poison as a way of homaging the case, which I just thought was interesting. But right. yeah, that is why he killed Anna Stravinska. I'm using air quotes here. It's extremely frustrating that we still don't really know her name or all that much about her at the end of the novel. And that is why he killed Alfred and Harold. And that is it. Yeah. Although one of the ironies of it is we've talked about this a lot before, but there's a real fixation on taxation in this book. You know, I kept a running count, Catherine, as I do now in these later novels. Seven times. It's mentioned seven separate times. Yeah. Because the income is just going to be taxed insanely. Yeah, there's all sorts of talk about taxes because I think it actually would be very complicated how this inheritance would be awarded in in real life. But the motivation there does make sense. He really wanted to marry Emma. He really wanted the money that Emma was going to bring into the marriage. And she would bring significantly more money, however much that would be. If you kill off some family members. Yeah, if you kill off some family members. So that is 450 from Paddington. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. So we've been talking about this fabulous puzzle game, Best Fiends, for a while now. And I am happy to report that many of you, dear listeners, have likewise caught the bug, so to speak. Do you see what I did there? I did, in fact, unfortunately see what you did there, Kemper. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it turns out we were right that lovers of puzzle mysteries such as yourselves would gravitate toward this game. I am both pleased and mildly alarmed to note that one listener in particular has made it to level 448 as of this recording. Well, Kemper, I have to say that apparently my best fiends and myself need to get cracking on our next adventure. You do indeed. You know, what's really fun also is that you can actually track your friend's progress via Facebook, if you like, which makes playing the game that much more fun. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. There are actually three adaptations for this novel. The first is Murder, She Said which was released in 1961. This is the first Margaret Rutherford MGM picture. Per Mark Aldridge, our good friend, uh, the initial title apparently for this was Meet Miss Markle, but that was soon changed to Murder, She Said. And we've talked a lot about these before. I don't think we have to dwell on this one all that much. We've discussed how we don't really like these films, even though we do like Margaret Rutherford a lot and how it seems that Agatha Christie pretty much felt exactly the same (laughs) on both fronts. How 
for some Christie fans, they're nostalgic and quite beloved. Hence, they're a bit of a controversial topic among Christie fans. We know there are many of you out there who love them. I'll say this in Margaret Rutherford's first outing. We at least have Miss Marple in a Miss Marple novel, which is literally the only time (laughs) that we will get that in any of these four MGM Marple movies. So that's good. And the plot of the movie basically follows the plot of the novel, which is saying something for these MGM movies. There's no Mrs. McGillicuddy and there's no Lucy Islesboro. So Margaret Rutherford does everything. She sees the murder in the beginning. She takes on the job as a maid, which is ridiculous. But again, Margaret Rutherford is a comedic actress and they make a lot of how ridiculous that is that she would be hired as a maid. There are a lot of jokes, some dated more than others, about how old Miss Marple is to be a maid. You are Miss Emma's nephew, I presume. Yes, Alexander Eastley. How do you do? How do you do? I'm Jane, Jane Marple. Yes. It is disappointing, isn't it? I'd rather hoped for the Jane Mansfield type. The comedy is extremely physical. There's a score and even sound effects to accompany it that I think really establishes the tone of these movies from the get-go. Just two things that I want to say about it before we move on. One is that the Krakenthorpe family is renamed Ackenthorpe, which drives me to distraction because it's like, why? Like, why change it so slightly? And I remember they did the same thing with Miss Gilchrist in Murder at the Gallop, which was their adaptation of After the Funeral. Her name was changed to Miss Millcrest. Why? <laughs> like uh, maybe there was some sort of like legal issue for some reason. I mean, it's hard to tell, right? There wasn't though. They had the license. I mean, they had bought the license to these novels. That was the whole point. It's just bizarre. But the other significant fact about this movie is that there is an actor in it, and this will be a great segue into the next adaptation of this novel, because that actor is Joan Hickson. That's right. Joan Hickson is in Murder, She Said. She plays... A very unimpressed Mrs. Kidder, who is the daily woman already working as hired help at Rutherford Hall. You know, it's funny how things always come together. My sister's eldest had measles, and then her Ernie Fennon broke his arm, and her husband come out all over with boils, all in the same week. You wouldn't believe it, would you? It's going to be the same thing here. First that nasty murder, and then Mr. Albert poisoned. It's going to be the next, I'd like to know. Things always go in threes. She's got comedic chops, too. Like, she's noticeably good in the movie, but it tickled me that she was in the Margaret Rutherford adaptation. And then, of course, she's in the next adaptation that we should discuss, which is the BBC Hickson series. Yeah, more, uh, than, more than 20 years later. More than 20 years later. Yeah, 1987, actually. So 26 years later, more than a quarter century later. This was the ninth of the 12 novels to air. It actually aired on Christmas in 1987. It's actually interesting. The three novels that aired after this were also Christmas specials, there were really only two seasons of the Joan Hickson Miss Marple yeah, series, and really then they just did a bunch because, of specials. Yeah, it, it always strikes me, because I, I kind of felt like it went on longer than that, but yeah. This is a very solid and very faithful adaptation of the novels, totally what we've come to expect from the series. It's worth noting that Maurice Denham plays detestable patriarch, or would-be patriarch, Luther Crackenthorpe. He, of course, played Parker Pine in the mm-hmm. Agatha Christie Hour at the beginning of the decade. 
Also worth noting, this is a fun fact I got from Mark Aldridge, that Joan Hickson lunched with the Queen on the 9th of December of that year in 1987, at which point the Queen, quote, revealed herself to be a keen watcher of the series. I love that. I think one of the unsung but key aspects of the Hickson series is the ongoing rivalry that it sets up between Miss Marple and Inspector Slack. Yeah. Which is yeah. sort of in the text, but not nearly to the extent that it is in the series. Because basically what the Hickson series does with the Marple texts regarding Slack is exactly what the Suchet series does with the Poirot texts regarding Jap. I.e., they substitute him for the Inspector Distoire. So the relationship between Miss Marple and Inspector Slack really has a lot of room to grow. And it's especially brilliant in this novel because we have that opening section where Miss Marple is getting stymied by the authorities and she has to strike out on her own. And that very much happens in the text, but in the adaptation, it's framed in the context of her ongoing rivalry with Inspector Slack. The fullest inquiries have been instituted, madam, on the basis of the defective information you furnished because we have some respect for you in the county. That's the best we can do. But Inspector... And may I remind you that there is an offence called wasting police time. I can see how irritating this must be for you, Inspector, so I'll ignore what you just said. After all, we may both be involved in this business at a later date. When one of us is clever enough to find the body. I just have to give kudos to David Horovich, who plays Inspector Slack, because no one plays irritated so convincingly and so entertainingly as he. He is just eye-rolling throughout this thing, and it's really, really funny. You know, I think it's a good adaptation. Pretty faithful. I mean, like, there are some different changes, but, like, relatively faithful, right? Relatively faithful. Well, we should mention one of the few changes actually does involve Lucy Islesboro. I thought that this Lucy Islesboro was mainly excellent. I think that she felt very similar to the Lucy Islesboro of the text. But we failed to mention what happens with that Lucy Islesboro love triangle at the end of the novel, because don't think that Miss Marple ignores it. Well, um, hey, by the way, though, I want to actually kind of figure out your opinion on this, because in the Joan Hickson adaptation, I think it's directly said who she's going to end up with. Oh, it is. In the Joan Hickson adaptation, she has an ongoing flirtation with Brian Eastley, but a physical attraction to Cedric Crackenthorpe. They even kiss at one point, and Brian Eastley sees it, and he's sort of horrified. But Brian Eastley eventually kind of comes into his own, and he is the one who's instrumental in catching Dr. Quimper. He has to actually crash through a window. It's almost like a Suchet series action sequence at the end. I was like, did Clive Exton write the end of this one? (laughs) Is there a Laurie backing up somewhere? I know. Like a lorry backing up that's going to block a car chase. Yeah. There's a little bit of action in which he really comes into his own. And then Miss Marple even has some exposition where she says Lucy was attracted to Cedric, but she'll grow to love Brian after she marries him. And I think she even says after she has her second child with him or third child, something like that. Because again, Miss Marple is just omniscient. But in the text, it's left very much up in the air. And that's actually how the novel ends, where, you know, Miss Marple says, well, she has a choice to make between Brian Eastley and Cedric Crackenthorpe. And Inspector Craddock says, yeah, I wonder who she's going to choose. And Miss Marple is like, oh, don't you know? And he's like, no, do you? And she's like, mm-hmm. And she sort of twinkles at him. And she's like, oh, I know. Here's and then the, the novel ends. Well, I mean, here's like a legitimate question. Do you think that she's implying that it's actually our D.I. Craddock? Well, 
It's really interesting. So the ITV adaptation, mm-hmm. uh, that's exactly where they go. Yeah. Lucy Islesboro does end up with D.I. Craddock. However, I did not think that. And when I finished the novel, I actually had an extremely strong opinion as to who she ended up with. Do you have Brian? an opinion? No. I was convinced that she ended up with Cedric. The reason I was convinced of that has to do with the Sidford mystery actually. So this is not going to be a spoiler as to puzzle mystery, but for anyone who hasn't read the Sidford mystery and doesn't want to be spoiled in any way whatsoever, fast forward a minute or two. But we had a very similar love triangle in the Sidford mystery where Emily Trefusis was deciding between her kind of lazy lug of a fiance and then this very energetic journalist who she met in the course of her investigations. And it felt as though the novel were setting us up for her to end up with the journalist because we saw that relationship blossom throughout the novel, but she ends up with her lazy fiance. And it's the idea that like, you know, she's going to improve him and do good things for him. I was very much convinced that she was going to end up with Cedric Krakenthorpe for similar reasons because it's not as satisfying, but it, to me just, I had a whiff of the way that Christie tends to think of these relationships. And I'm happy to say, Catherine, Mm -hmm. that John Curran did not fail me on this point, as he never does on any point having to do with anything in an Agatha Christie novel I'm interested in. In Agatha Christie's notebooks, she describes the character of Cedric Crackenthorpe as follows. Cedric, a Robert Graves Rolling Stone uninhibited, um, and Robert Graves is a real-life friend of Christie, um, who actually wrote I, Claudius. He mm-hmm. was um, right. the dedicatee of Toward Zero. We've talked about him, actually, really briefly, I think, mm-hmm. on the podcast before. So she writes, Cedric, a Robert Graves type, Rolling Stone uninhibited, and then in parentheses, eventually to marry Lucy Islesboro, and parentheses. Interesting. So it seems that that is the answer. That's not canon, though. She didn't put it in the book. I actually think, regardless of who you think Lucy ends up with, I actually think it's extremely important that she doesn't end up with anyone at the end of the novel. That even though there's this idea that she is going to settle down after the adventure that she had in this book, that she is just as independent on the last page as she is on the page that she's introduced. No, 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 no. no. You know what I mean? I do. I do know what you mean. And I agree. I mean, I think that there's just like that hint of like a guessing game to play. And like the book, even if that was her intention, I actually think that from what is in the book, you either have to go with Brian Eastley or you kind of have to guess that Miss Marple's hint at the end is towards Craddock. You do, although I think the real hint is there's this scene between Lucy and Cedric when Cedric is saying something to her and she's like, oh God, are you going to propose to me now too? And he's basically like, no, I'm not going to propose to you and you seem like you're getting a pretty big head. You should be careful about that. He's the one person who doesn't really make overtures to her. Right. And at, from that moment on, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's not clear. I, and I think it's a fair reading too, because she's already mentioned how handsome D.I. Craddock is. So 
perhaps. I don't think there's much more textual support for it other than her eyes twinkling like that at the end, but right. um, it really could be any of those three, but I love that she doesn't definitively end up with anyone. I think it just goes a long way toward preserving the character of Lucy Islesboro. Yeah, um, no, no, no. I, I, I totally you know? I totally agree. And so we should um, also just touch upon the ITV adaptation. Yes. Which, uh, Geraldine McEwen, and I'm happy to say John Hanna, who, like, I always like seeing John Hanna show up. He's the detective right. who she stays with. Instead of staying with her old maid, Florence, she stays with the man who becomes the detective on the case and who ends up with Lucy. But I just, like, I have yes. such, like, a 90s teenage girl nostalgia for Four Weddings at a Funeral and Sliding Doors. Other than that, I don't know that I have very many nice things to say about this. Yeah. So it aired in also, you know, day after Christmas in 2004. It's the third episode of the first season. I think it's fine. I mean, I think that the first season of the series and of Geraldine McEwen is one of the better ones. I think it got more cartoony from there. I think most of the episodes I have issues with are actually in seasons two and three of the McEwen years. And then I think Julia McKenzie actually nails it a little bit better. We've talked about this before. My main issue is that I didn't think that the, and it's not really a critique of the actress. I just didn't think the way that she was written that Lucy Islesboro was true to type. She didn't really seem to have all the characteristics that she has in the text, and I thought she was a much less interesting character in this adaptation than certainly yeah. in the Hickson series yeah. or in the text. Yeah, I agree. I know Mark Aldrich was really irked by the fact that Noel Coward makes a cameo appearance in this. Like, not actual Noel Coward, obviously, but it's someone who's supposed to be Noel Coward. That's <laughs> well, talk about decomposing. That would have been... <laughs> exactly. That would have been interesting. <laughs> but like that's how we meet Lucy, that she's like been working for Noel Coward. And it is jarring and weird, and it's just one of those things where you're like, they were really going for something in this series and trying to do different things. Sometimes it worked. Often it didn't. The only other thing on adaptations I want to note is that there is technically a French language adaptation that aired in 2008 and actually stars a French Tommy and Tuppence. Crime is our business. Uh, I'm going to say it in French, Catherine, because I know how much you love my French. Oh, no, Le crime est notre affaire. And there are also two Japanese language adaptations, one that aired in 2006 and the other in 2018, very recently. And this latter one had the frankly awesome title, 450 from Paddington, Night Express Train Murder. There honestly are so many Japanese language adaptations of Christie happening. It's like an extraordinarily robust market. I really wish that I spoke or understood <laughs> Japanese or even just had better access to them because I think there's there's a ton of really interesting adaptations happening there. Right. Let's transition into the rankings. So plot mechanics, I mean, I think we've we've been pretty clear on this that this novel falls off a cliff when it comes to plot mechanics. It's all humming along so superbly mm -hmm. until the solution because the solution makes so much of the book irrelevant. And I was thinking a little bit about this and why it bothers me so much. And it actually, I think, is really helpful to compare it to two other novels. So, spoiler alerts here, if you haven't read Appointment with Death or After the Funeral, fast forward a couple of minutes. What happens here puts me in mind of what happens with the Boynton family in Appointment with Death and the Abernethy clan in After the Funeral. In both of those books, there was lots of ink spilled as to the sort of intricacies and intimacies of familial relations. And the solutions had very little to do with those families. But you know, in Appointment with Death, I still argue that understanding who Mrs. Boynton was vis-a-vis -vis her family makes 
the solution much more believable. Like we believe that this random lady MP <laughs> would have to kill her because Mrs. Boynton was going to be an absolute monster to her once she had figured out who she was. You know, and similarly, and after the funeral, I think the insularity, the myopia of the Abernethy family goes a long way towards selling Miss Gilchrist's ability to impersonate Cora. Right. And it also sort of brings home the idea that Miss Gilchrist was someone that people weren't looking at very closely because she was the help and the family didn't really see her as an equal. So it just added to the world in which the solution took place. But here, there's just not that connective tissue. All of the stuff having to do with the Krakenthorps, with the sons, it has and actually and nothing how much they to hated do with their the father. Plot. It had nothing to do with anything. All this plot was, was a man who wanted to marry a woman, both because I guess he kind of liked her and also wanted her money, and he had to kill his first wife because she was Catholic. That's it. Yeah. That's it. I mean, so where do you come down on a ranking? I come down on, I think, no higher than a four. Does a four make sense? Yeah, it it does make sense. And it's not because I don't like this book. It's because nothing in the book is about the murderer. And then also, you don't really know anything about the victim. Yeah. It's too many red herrings. And I mean, shout out to Freeman Wills Crofts, who is the golden age detective novelist who often had his solutions hinging on railway timetables. And because I remember so little of this book, I was like, oh, I wonder if we're going to get a little bit of that. Maybe yeah. this is in some ways an homage to that. But no, <laughs> you know, I mean, it it really has has nothing to do with that and not in a satisfying way. And I just I, the reason why I want to bring up those other two books is that I think we give a lot of leeway for the connection being extremely indirect or oblique or weak, you know, but here it's just non-existent. Right. So, so, so moving on to plot credibility, I mean, here's the thing. Everything is actually pretty credible to an extent in the family dynamic. All of that actually makes sense. And actually the idea of like killing your wife because she won't divorce you also makes sense. And mm-hmm. also trying to kill some people to get an inheritance makes sense. It's the mm-hmm. combination of the two that are just like, okay, this guy contemplates this entire thing. He does it in a public place for who only knows what reason, has to then remove a body without anybody seeing him from a train, has to hide that body, has to drag that body, has to find and open a sarcophagus that happens to be buried in a barn to hide that body. You've lost me at that point. I've never said this before in our plot credibility category, and I can't believe I'm saying it for the first time in a Miss Marple novel, but the part that I find hard to believe is the detection or lack thereof. I don't believe that Ms. Marple actually could have solved this. And I I mean, I can't believe I'm saying that because, again, she's omniscient and omnipotent and Dark Marple is clearly going to visit me in my bed tonight and (laughs) do away with me. But I don't believe it. By the way, like, it's not just Kern who thinks that. There's actually a really great review from Francis Isles. Mm-hmm. Uh, in The Guardian at the time. That would be Anthony Barkley Cox, who said, this book is fun because Mrs. Christie is always a lot of fun to read, but there's no detection right. in it. And there should be detection in a piece of detective fiction. And Robert Barnard had the exact same problem. This is the universal problem that everyone has identified. And I just don't believe that Miss Marple could have gotten there because it just doesn't have anything to do with anything. So I'm coming out on, I think, maybe a five. Yeah. Plot credibility should I mean, be a the, little the, better the, than the, the motive. Right. I agree. The motivation makes sense. It's that. Sure. 
nothing else really does. I would also just note that there's a missed opportunity here in that when the police are checking up on this dancer with the alias Anna Stravinska, we get a long list of the stories that she told her fellow dancers, being the mistress to a great financier, how she's about to go on a cruise with a rich man who reminds him of his daughter who died in a car accident, etc., etc., And it's one of these Christie laundry list moments, so it feels like one of them has to be true. We've been conditioned to expect that in a Christie novel, but they're all untrue, which is so frustrating because couldn't one of those supposed fabrications have been that she was the wife of a country doctor? Because then there would have at least been one specific clue that would have helped us solve this mystery. It's disappointing. I think a five, and I think the four, you know, it's indicative of the fact that it's not like this whole plot is a mess. It just falls off a cliff at the end and it doesn't all come together. So No, absolutely. And then I think it's made worse by the fact that when we're talking about series-long characters, we get pretty good Miss Marple very early Mm -hmm. on and at the end, but we don't get a lot of her. We might not get a lot of her on every single page, but I don't even think we mentioned like she does move to the vicinity because she stays with one of her many former maids, the faithful Florence. So Lucy gets to check in with her regularly. D.I. Craddock checks in with her regularly. She does a detection at the beginning and she also she recreates the crime at the end. I know. No, no, no. Which is like awesome. So points to her for that. Also, I actually think D.I. Craddock is pretty good. I love him. I was going to do an eight for this. I have a feeling that's a little too high for you. Um, I can get behind that. That's fine. Okay, great. It's my lucky day, apparently. We will do an eight for series-long characters. Marple uh, shall reign supreme. <laughs> um, so then on book-specific, I mean, I, you know how I feel about Lucy Isles, bro. Yeah, but I mean, I think the argument is she's the best character that's written specifically for this book. So, you know, nobody else gets major points on that front. I mean, literally, we don't know the murder victim's name by the end of the book. But I would, again, put that mainly to plot, which, is, which right. you know, is why we gave plot such low scores. But I would say this. I think that Lucy is, you know, head and shoulders above the rest of the casting characters. But I wouldn't give that many demerits to these characters either. It's not like they all blend in together. They're not superficial. I know who each of them is. They yeah, don't stand true. out among the canon, but they work in the book. I mean, this book is functioning certainly as Christie traditionally does when it comes to the cast of characters. No, 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 no. I think that's fair. Some of them have a lot of similarities with other books that we have read, obviously. So <laughs> that's that's a demerit. But I think Lucy is good enough that, I mean, I think I'd go somewhere around a seven. What do you think? A seven is perfect. I did just want to point out that the two boys who really do feature prominently in the novel, Janet Morgan, again, MVP for this episode, she makes the point that they are, quote, rather like Matthew. And, you know, Matthew Pritchard at this point was a little older than that. I believe he was 13 or 14, probably, when she was writing the novel. But you can tell that she had been around boys. They're roughly around that age, right? They're like 12 or so. Yeah, I think they are. Yeah. Yeah, I think they are. And she talks about By the way, talk about your detection they're actually the only people on the i mean lucy does her like body hunt early on but the people who are trying to do the most detection in this are actually the little boys no it's true and they really are great characters i mean i love i love when she describes how they um discoursed gravely during lunch on events in the sporting world with occasional references to the latest space fiction their manner was that of elderly professors discussing paleolithic implements that is such a christy description right there but an excellent one like no, you, you can 
tell she's no, and also there's also a moment very late on where Lucy's packing up Alexander's suitcase, and she's like, "You can't possibly really be taking all of these books with you, right?" And he's like, "Well, no, I read the first two. Right. And it's like it's like a just charmingly endearing detail. So I'm glad that we're settled on a seven. And then for setting in tone, um, you know, I mean, I think that I would rank it really pretty high. We talked about readability at the beginning of the episode. You know, I'd go seven or an eight. I think an eight is in order. I don't think we've actually done an eight for a while, but this to me is Christy at her most readable, which is saying a lot, as you know. I mean, when Christy is effervescent and the pages are turning and the dialogue is sparkling, it's just a joy to read. And I would put that book 100% up there with some of the most superb Christies. It just, again, unfortunately, doesn't stick the landing. But until then, until you know the last five to ten pages, it's just fantastic. So I think that totally goes to readability. And let's also give her her due on setting because Rutherford Hall, the idea of this big drafty house with this heavy furniture in it and the long barn and the railroads that are crisscrossing the grounds and how you can hear the town kind of from certain areas within the estate and the town is encroaching and as soon as Luther dies, you know they're just going to sell it off and parcel it off for estate planning and whatnot. I feel like she really evoked Brackhampton, the town, and Rutherford Hall Hall and its grounds extremely yeah. well. No, no, no. I, I agree on that front too. So we can go there. And then for deductions, I don't really have anything. I don't either. You know, there are a couple of characters saying some dicey, dodgy things, but that's in their mouths. We do have a scene with Madame Joualet, who's the proprietress of that mediocre ballet company where Anna Stravinska, using air quotes again, worked. That scene sticks out because Madame Joualet definitely has a few eyebrow-raising things to say. Christie's treating her comedically, and I think even a bit contemptuously, but Madame Joualet does make a direct allusion to male homosexuality, which is just unusual in Christie, so I just wanted to highlight it. She talks about that little fool who drank the carbolic acid, and all because she has fallen in love with the chef d'orchestre, who does not care for women and has other tastes. It's supposed to be this funny little, you know, thing. Yeah. It made me wince slightly as I read it, no. but only slightly. Well, I, I mean, think- also, I mean, if you have any protective feelings towards artists, dancers, the French or Catholics, I suppose you might also have some problems. Yeah, but I think that none of it really adds up to anything that is disturbing or alarming in the way that sometimes we encounter the text sometimes um, and feel that we have to take off points. So I'm okay with taking off no points. Yeah, that's all right. Okay. It is time to tally up the marks here for 415 from Paddington. We've got a 4 plus 5 plus 8 plus 7 plus 8 minus 0 for a grand total of 32 points, which is putting 450 from Paddington in a big old tie. We've got a lot of titles at the 32-point mark. Here is what we have, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Evil Under the Sun, Three-Act Tragedy, Appointment with Death, Lord Edgeware Dies, Mrs. McGinty's Dead, and Taken at the Flood. They are all at 32 points, and they're hovering around 16 to 21 of 48 titles. I put it at the bottom of it, but I Mm -hmm. would pretty much put it very, very closely with Taken at the Flood and Mrs. McGinty's Dead. I completely agree with you on that. You know, it's slightly higher than the halfway mark, which 
feels right because this is a really good Christie, but it has a major problem. So I don't think it should be any higher than that. So I like where it is in a holistic way within the rankings. I think it's an open question whether or not it's better than taken at the flood. I think it might be, but I think it might not be better than Mrs. Bikitti's dead. I might want to put it between those two. Mm. Yeah. And we can reevaluate, of course, because that's what we do. We do make adjustments. But yeah, yeah, I think that maybe that's right. I might even put it above Mrs. McGinty's dead. But yes, this is a very low stakes ranking because we are actually going to be recording a state of the rankings episode very soon since we've just had an anniversary or yeah. four year anniversary for the podcast. So we will be rejiggering these rankings. And so let's put it there for now. But we may rearrange things slightly. Yeah, sounds good. All right. So that puts 450 from Paddington in 21st place among 49 titles. Oh my god! I feel good about that. Yeah. We're almost at book number 50, Catherine. Oh my gosh. That book, of course, will be Ordeal by Innocence. Oh, I'm so looking forward. I can't wait. Our next episode will be, as we just recently referenced, our annual State of the Rankings episode since we just celebrated our podcast's fourth anniversary. So get ready for all sorts of geekery as to which titles deserve to be reshuffled and why. And again, take a look at what the International Agatha Christie Festival has on offer over at their YouTube channel. The best way to do that is just to search for International Agatha Christie Festival on YouTube. You can also find us on our Patreon account. We're at www.patreon.com com slash all about Agatha. We will be discussing Agatha Christie's first autobiographical text, Come Tell Me How You Live, in our next episode. Very excited about that. We would love to hear from you as always, so shoot us an email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. If you have not yet given us a rating or a review, we would really appreciate it if you did and we'll see you next time bye bye